Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Savarova. I'm a CEO of strategytraining.com and firmsconsulting.com and co-host of the Strategy Skills Podcast. And today we have a very special guest with us, Jim Fielding. Jim had led consumer products groups at the world's largest media companies, including Disney and DreamWorks. Jim served as president of Disney stores worldwide for four years. Very few people have experience like that. Looking forward to diving into this. <laughs> And Jim currently serves as a partner at Archer Gray, an independent media company. Jim, welcome. So great to have you with us today. Oh, my gosh. I'm so honored. Thank you so much for having me. Jim, so let's start from the beginning. Maybe you could give us some, set some context, how you ended up where you are today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty interesting story. I mean, I was born... Uh, in Toledo, Ohio, so the middle of the United States, for people who don't know the geography, the Midwest, in a very, um, in a family that was third or fourth generation Toledo, like Toledo was our hometown. And I was born into, my dad was a fireman, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so it was a very, you know, I guess it would be called that upper middle class, but, you know, blue-collar environment. And I went to a public high school, you know, public elementary school. Um, and I, from a very early age, my my entire family instilled me with a value, the value of learning, the value of caring about your community and giving back. And I knew from a very early age that my future was not in Toledo, Ohio. And it's no offense against Toledo, Ohio, but I was just, my family gave me wings and made me believe I was destined for something bigger. And so I, I went to Indiana University, which was a, a Big Ten university, but in the neighboring state, six hours away from home by car. And so it was a, you know, that was a big move when you're 18. And I majored in political science because I thought I was going to be an international lawyer. Uh, I'm dating myself a little bit, but this was before the common currency. This is before the union. This is really before the euro. And um, I studied a lot about the different political economies of Europe and um, that was really my focus was like the economic and political history of Europe. Ended up not going to law school because had a lot of debt coming out of undergrad school. It was also the 80s and they were telling us to go get work experience before you went on to get an advanced degree, like go get practical life experience. And with a political science degree in the 80s, your choices were basically retail, pharmaceutical sales or like insurance sales. And I had done retail my whole life. I'd never honestly considered retail as a career, but I thought going into a retail training program, which is what I did with Dayton Hutt's department store company, was a really good like two years. Like I would get a great training in an interesting industry and then I would go back to law school. So I deferred my admissions to law school. And once I got into retail, as we said, I was like bitten by the retail bug. I loved it. I was good at it. Um, I loved interacting with the customers. I loved the buying. I loved the product, all of it. And I basically was like, okay, I'm going to build a career in retail. 
never really went back to law school and just progressed in retail. And then, you know, made some strategic decisions. I left the department stores. I went to The Gap, which was at the time, there was nothing better in retail than The Gap. And I thought, if I'm going to work in retail, I've got to go work for the best. Uh, and uh, had an incredible run there. Did some catalog merchandising with Land's End. And then really the second half of my career, so the first half was very retail. The second half was very media, to your point. And I got recruited uh, in 2001 to run the Disney catalog. And that got me to California and got me into big media. And I learned so much about the magic of Disney and the merchandising of Disney and what it meant for those fans and the guests of the Disney brand. And to your point, spent my last four years there as the president of Disney Store, which was a dream job. We can talk more about that. And then decided I wanted to be a retail CEO and that wasn't going to happen at Disney. And so I I went, I moved to Chicago and became the CEO of Claire Stores, the girls' jewelry and accessory stores, um, and had a really interesting run there. Uh, learned a lot, again, about retail, learned about private equity, learned about being a CEO, and then was recruited to go back to Hollywood by Jeffrey Katzenberg to uh, do DreamWorks and Awesomeness TV. And I really was missing what I had at Disney um, and was missing that uh, that media, the big media. Um, and then the last five years of my career out there in LA, I was, I have many stories about mergers and acquisitions and the consolidation in the media industry because DreamWorks was acquired by NBC Universal and I was out of a job. And then I went to 20th Century Fox to do consumer products as president for film and television. And then 20th Century Fox was acquired by Disney. It was like this whole full circle moment. And at that point was when I made the decision that I, I didn't want to do big media anymore and I was going to be more independent, do more consulting, investing, board work. Um, and that's really where we are today. Um, and I love the diversity of my clients that I work with. I love the diversity of the companies that I've personally invested in and that I advise. Um, and I think for where I am in my career, this is what I wanted to do right now. Um, I, it just feels like a natural progression. Jim, when you were talking about the training that you were going through during that, what you thought would be two years stopover on the way to law school, yes. international business, you mentioned that you were determined to be the best and you studied at night in during breaks. Yes. And it reminded me of myself and how I have that same drive and determination to be the best Yes, I can possibly be. And many of our listeners are the, exactly the same way. And of course, this drive yes. comes at a price. And I was yes. wondering what advice would you give someone who has that drive? What should they yeah, I mean, about how they should? Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think, I think one of the, one of the learnings that I write about, because I've written a book, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but one of the learnings I write about in the book that you're referencing is the first learning actually in the book is called control the controllable, but leave space for the possible. And, and I think that's been one of my major learnings in my career is that I do have drive and ambition and I want to be successful and I want to learn and I want to grow. But I think times in my career, honestly, Chris, like I, I sacrifice things. I sacrifice things in my personal life. I, I may have sacrificed relationships and I 
wasn't managing my stress well. I wasn't managing my my kind of emotional, mental, physical well-being because I was just so driven to be successful at work. And I think as I matured and as I look back now, it was like I was really trying to control many things that weren't controllable. And I think that's what I'm talking about with control and control is not everything in your life is controllable or planned. And I was missing out on some of that spontaneity and that serendipity and that innovation and creativeness that comes from those spaces of blankness and just those spaces of let's see what's happening out there in the world. And I think, especially now with the pace of technology and the pace of change, um, you know, a year ago, I wasn't having chat GPT and AI discussions, right? I mean, like that wasn't on my radar, right? And now I've had to study chat GPT and AI and what that means for the marketing world and the retail world. So I always say to people, embrace your drive, embrace your ambition, but also learn how to control it and learn how to temper it so that you're not missing out on maybe some other opportunities. And it sounds cliche, but that balance of like work-life balance and, you know, this kind of being in harmony with your physical and mental and emotional health, I think is really, really important. And early in my career, I prioritized career, 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 career. Um, that, that was my filter. My filter was, how am I going to learn more? How am I going to get advanced? How am I going to be promoted? Um, I would never step on anybody to do that. I wasn't that kind of person. It was more about what I did to myself. I totally understand. When I was reading it, it was just me. I could see myself and I could recognize also my clients, many of my clients. And I think from my yeah. experience, just building on what you said, I think it's about, it, it is about, yes, we we choose our own height where we want to go. We can settle and stay somewhere or we can climb much higher. Mm-hmm. But if we think about climbing mountains and but then at the same time, in that journey, we still have to have more respect for our health, for our body, remembering that we are not a robot. We actually have to take care of our body. Yes. Our body. It will tell you if something is wrong and if it needs more rest. So it would. And I, I found myself like needing to recharge my batteries, right? Because I would give, give, give so much. And then to your point, Chris, I would, I would get physically sick. Like I, I, I would get a flu or I get a bad cold where your body was like forcing you to lay in bed. Your body was basically saying, we're not going to keep fueling this insanity. Um, and, and it would almost force rest and force me to sleep or, you know, basically not work. And, um, I've now learned how to energy manage better where I don't run my battery down so low that I'm then susceptible to illness. Um, but again, that came with, with time that came with experience. Like I, I didn't know that at the beginning for sure. That is very true. Same with me. You just don't know it in the beginning. And we are here to tell you guys, please take care of your health. Yes. Really is the most learn important. from us. Yes. Yeah. Learn from us. And time moves so fast. I think that's the thing that's been fascinating with with writing the book. All of a sudden you wake up and you're 35, 40 years into a career and and you realize you have this wealth of experiences and this wealth of knowledge, but it just it just does go so fast. And and I, you know, I know I I always say I sound like my parents, I sound like an old person, but it does. Time moves really, really fast. 
It does. It goes so fast. I, I often hear from people, I don't know where the last 10 years, man. I just don't understand. So it's important to really pay attention how you're spending your days, your weeks, your months, because it will mm-hmm. go fast. And also it's interesting how we think that life is so long, but then if you actually think about how many more Christmases you have left, how many more birthdays you have left, how many more yeah. you have left. Yes, I wrote about that. I know you, I can tell you read the book. Yeah, that was... That is one of my mantras. My friends don't like it because I say 20 more summers and they want me to say 30 more summers. But I I was very conscious. I wrote about in the book and, and thank you for reading it because it's so obvious that I lost both of my male, I lost both, I lost one grandfather at 71, one at 69 and my father at 72. And so when I hit my 50s, I'm not saying that I'm going to go, by the way, I'm going to fight it. I'm not going to go in my 70s. But there was this realization that life is short and not always predictable and controllable. And and if I have 20 more summers, um, what do I want to do with those summers? Where do I want to spend those summers? Who do I want to be spending time with? Where, you know, where do I want to be? And and coincidentally, we're in the summer when we're recording this, and I'm in Michigan where I don't live. I, I live in Atlanta, Georgia, but in the summer I live in Michigan because I wanted to be by the lake. And that was an investment I chose to make, you know, both a, a, a financial investment, but also a time investment that I was going to relocate my life for three or four months to spend time at the Great Lakes on Lake Michigan, because that's what brought me joy. And um, I I really, again, that's something for your younger listeners, like learn it young. And you might have 50 more summers, depending on, you know, who's listening but there's still a finite number to your point. There's only so many birthdays. There's only so many summers. There's only so many anniversaries. There's only so many kids graduations. Like, and I think those life moments are precious and you can't get them back. And um, I, I think, you know, one of, one of my mantras I follow is I want to be a human being, not a human doing. And I think that's what this comes out of is that I want to be present. I want to be, in the moment, soaking everything I can out of that particular day or that particular week and not feel like I'm just on some treadmill repeating a formula and um, running towards some goal. Uh, And again, I learned it late. Part of the reason I wrote the book is I want people to learn it earlier than I did. That is very true, Jim. And also, I noticed just going through that experience, similar experience to yours, is that People like us who are incredibly driven and we just give it everything we have. Later on, as you become wiser, you realize that if you just give yourself a little more rest, you would have been even more productive. Better, exactly. And I think I think some of my most inspirational times, my most creative ideas, my best work comes after I've been on vacation for two weeks. By the way, that's the thing I learned, Chris. I'm sure in your career, I thought a vacation was one week. Like, and what I learned about myself is do two week vacations because it takes me a week to de-stress from work, right? So if I was taking a week vacation on day six, I was starting to think about work already, right? But if I take a two week vacation, I actually physically and emotionally and mentally change. And guess what? Your position, your company, everything's still there whether you take a week off or two weeks off, it's still there when you get back. But I found when I came back from two week breaks, 
that I was much more productive and much more rested and focused and had a new perspective, which is what I think vacations are supposed to be about, right? But for many years in my career, I thought you took a week at a time, you know, like I just thought that's what you did. And then all of a sudden I started to watch people and I'm like, oh, they took two weeks off. That's interesting. I should consider that, right? And uh, it was unbelievable, unbelievable, the change. I could feel in myself because the second week of a break, I would start to feel different. I would be sleeping different. I'd be eating different. Like I, it just, everything changed. Yes. And if anyone listening now never experienced this feeling when you're on vacation or you're traveling and you just all of a sudden start seeing your life from this huge picture perspective, you see all the elements that you could yes. not see close, close by. It is incredibly important exercise to do. And it can yes. actually help you identify if you're going in the wrong direction and can save you a lot of And time. I think, I, yeah, I agree with you. And it takes a lot of discipline too, because the other thing is don't check your email every morning, right? Don't, you know, this 24-7 connectivity we have with iPhones and Google devices and, <laughs> excuse me, these kind of things actually are so hard to have the discipline because you can never really turn off if you're checking the emails every morning or you're checking your text messages or you're reading your news feed. You have to have that discipline to turn it off, put on the out of office notification, like, you know, that just that old out of office notification. I'm out of the office. If you need something urgently, please contact one of these two or three people. I mean, be professional about it. It's not like you're abandoning. And, and know that unless you're in a position of a company where you literally deal in life and death, like a brain surgeon or a heart surgeon or something, it's going to be there when you get back. Like, you know, for most of us in the business world, the issues that are there, the day you start vacation are probably still going to be there the day you get back. And you're going to handle them to your point better because you've recharged your batteries and you, you will have a different perspective for sure, for sure. That is very true. And also, even if you cannot take vacation right now, just having these periods of time during the week when you disconnect make a huge difference. Big difference. And, you know, I write about meditation became a tool in my life. I got into adult coloring books like I, I color. You know, I literally have colored pencils and these adult coloring books and color. Uh, journaling is a huge release for me. Just anything where I'm not thinking about work or I'm not thinking about a project I'm on. It's something that makes me go elsewhere. Reading, uh, but reading not business books. I read a lot of business books, but reading pleasure books, reading novels, reading historical fiction, just things that make you escape. Um, you know, I love, I think that's why I loved being in the media industry. I love movies. I love television. I love, uh, I love documentaries. But there's different moods for that. Sometimes I don't want a documentary because I don't want to learn. You know, documentary, I have to actually pay attention and be like, oh, this is really trying to teach me something. Sometimes I just want to laugh. I just want a comedy. I just want silly. Um, and I think it's, again, having that discipline to, to put that into your life so that you're not going nonstop. Jim, and what kind of meditation do you like to do? 
Yeah, I I was the horrible at this. Like, and I, I'm sure your readers. I love. I found uh, two, three apps really calm. Um, the Deepak Oprah app, Deepak Chopra, and then Ten Percent Happier. And I'm great at ten minute meditations, guided ten minute meditations. At fifteen minutes, I start to wander. Like I tried, and so, but for me to take 10 minutes in the middle of the day and turn on that app. And I'm really good about like, I'm coachable. It's funny because that's a lot of what you do in your job, right? I need to be coached to meditate. Like I need to have that voice say, okay, clear your brain, change your breathing. And um, I find those apps really, really helped me. I tried to go to like a group meditation center. I lived in California. I wasn't good at that. Like I, I, I wasn't good at sitting in a certain position on a certain cushion for a certain amount of time. It just didn't work for me. But I found 10 minutes a day or 10 minutes, even sometimes two times a day, depending on if it's a really stressful day, it lowers my blood pressure. It, it lower, like it, it, um, it lowers my anxiety. I really, I highly, highly recommend it. And there's so many apps out there that you can sample for free and they're all different. They're all slightly different. Um, but I, I think that's where technology has been amazing for me in that, in that case. I highly agree with you about meditation, such a powerful tool. It, it just makes such a huge, huge difference. Sometimes there are situations where you just completely wiped by something, but you have important thing coming up. You have to be at your best. And mm -hmm. the fastest way to get there is really for me, meditation. It just brings you back to life. Oh, I agree. Energy. And it's fast. I mean, 10 minutes is not that much time. Like, and, and you have 10 minutes. Um, I mean, I think, I think other tools that I use, I've learned to schedule breaks in the day. Like I don't schedule back-to-back -back meetings. Like I literally schedule half an hour in between meetings or sometimes an hour so that I get up and I just walk around or I just change location. Um, you know, where it used to be, especially during the pandemic, I think we got in this, this routine of Zoom meeting, Zoom meeting, Teams meeting, Google team, you know, like right up against each other. And you're sitting in the same position and you're looking at the same boxes all the time. And, and again, I wasn't feeling present. I was there, but I felt like I was going through the motions. I wasn't really bringing the best of me. I wasn't bringing my most authentic self. I wasn't bringing my best talent because I was just almost in a, in a routine. And so I, I'm very conscious of scheduling breaks and um, just getting up and walking around. It's funny because the Apple watch, I've got my Apple watch on that, you know, the fact that it tells you to stand is actually good. And I also bought just recently, I can't show you because I can't move the camera. I bought a standing desk. So I have a sitting desk and a standing desk and even just standing for some meetings has changed things. Um, just changed perspective, changed energy a little bit. Um, it, it's quite fascinating. But again, when I was younger, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that when I was younger. Yes. And imagine how much more productive you and I could be if we knew that when we were younger. Oh, without drive. I, uh, totally. I, you know, my, my publisher is John Wiley and Sons and my editor, this incredible woman named Shannon Vargo, 
when she told me, Jim, I want you to write the book that 57 year old, I want 57 year old Jim to write a book to 27 year old Jim. That is my book. You read it. It's literally a book I wrote to myself. It's like the most selfish thing ever. And it's like all those things I learned in those 30 years that I wish I knew at 27, because I think even though I've had an amazing career and I'm very proud of what I've done and I've met some amazing people, I do think it would have been even more enjoyable and less stressful and less angst filled if I had some of those tools, you know, they always say with age comes wisdom, right? And I think if I would have had some of that wisdom at a younger age, I would have handled situations differently. I would have, um, I, I, I would have, plotted things differently. I, I just know that. And when she gave me that kind of permission to write that kind of book, it it really changed my my whole outlook on the book. I, I I love it. I also often advise clients to do that. We have a one of the programs we have is where I co-write books with our clients. And this is one of the advice uh, something that I give yeah. Some advice as well because it's very powerful. Sometimes you kind of feel blocked, but you know what you would have told yourself if you could right. sit down with yourself, twenty-year-old in a park, and say, "Okay, we have one hour. I'm going to tell you everything you need to know." What would you tell yes. yourself? Yes, yes, that's it. It's been a gift. So writing the book, like I hope I help people with it, but it was hugely cathartic for me, and it helped me. It helped. Uh, refocus me and re-energize me in a way. So I, I hope it does that for other people. And by the way, for everyone listening, the book is called All Pride, No Ego. We will repeat it again later on. But so you guys know, if you're wondering what we're referring to. <laughs> yes, so, thank you. Thank you. Jim, so I think that listeners now, I think, you know, okay, Chris, all very interesting meditation, resting, got it, vacations. Please ask Jim about Disney's Store Worldwide role. So yes, let's talk a little yes. bit about that. So maybe we could start with a question. What do you think were, were some of the qualities that resulted in you getting that role? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, I think that I have that I I have and I had at that time the the right combination of financial skills and retail industry knowledge mixed with an appreciation for Disney storytelling and Disney heritage and Disney legacy and the Disney standard of doing things. And so I was able to combine classic retail knowledge that I got at the Gap and Land's End at Dayton Hudson and mix it with a, a tremendous respect for the storytellers of Disney, the classic storytellers of Disney like Cinderella and Snow White and Mickey Mouse. And then the modern storytellers like Toy Story and Cars and um, the more uh, the Pixar movies. And I think I was able to blend that into a stew where, listen, we were a business. We, we had to hit our top line numbers. We had to hit our revenue numbers. We had to hit our earnings. But I also had to deliver magical experiences to our guests, you know, and we called our customers, many people know this at Disney, guests. And for me, our rallying cry at Disney Store was we wanted to create the best 30 minutes of a family's day. And when we landed on that, when I got that role, to me, that became the filter for everything we did is we, when a family 
whatever the definition of a family, a mom and a child or a grandparent or uncles, when a, a child and their caregiver or elder came into the, the store or shopped with us online, I, I just wanted them to feel like they had crossed some kind of a portal and that for the next 30 minutes, they could just be a kid and imagine and play and see their favorite characters come to life in products and stories. And I think that was really because I was able to kind of come up with this formula where the blend. I think the other thing was, honestly, I had an amazing team. I recruited and trained and rewarded and recognized and retained. I had amazing people around the world because we were creating this magic at Disney store in 10 countries, you know, Japan, Italy, Spain, France, and me traveling around the world and meeting the people who were, we had a store in Venice, Italy. People crack up about that. It was honestly the size of a closet. It was a thousand square feet. One of the best experiences I had as Disney store president was visiting that team because the magic that that team created in a thousand square feet in Venice, I'd never seen anything like it before. Um, and so I, I think it was that combination of classic retail, classic financial acumen, understanding how to run a retail company, but then sprinkling a lot of pixie dust, as we said, you know, sprinkling a lot of that Disney magic. Jim, and if you could, if you could go back to 2008 when you started in that role, yeah, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> um, pace yourself. I think, you know, I, the first two years in that job was seven days a week, 12 hours a day. It was intense. I think many of your smart listeners will realize I got the job. And then four months later, it was the global economic meltdown, the recession where um, here I was, you know, brand new president of Disney store, full of enthusiasm, full of ideas, full of innovation. And all of a sudden our business was down 25, 30, 40, 50%. And um, I wasn't prepared for that. And so I think the other thing I older me would have said is, it's great to have exuberance. It's great to have all these plans, but also prepare contingency plans because if something goes wrong, you need to be prepared. Um, and we didn't have enough contingency plans as a team because we were just going, right? We were just full steam ahead. Um, and I think, again, something we've talked about earlier is, I mean, like you say, I was president of Disney Store for four years. That was so fast that like, I didn't take enough time to just stop and kind of smell the roses and just enjoy what we created as a team. And one of the things that's the most heartwarming in my career, my career, Christina, is here I, I left Disney in 2012. It's 2023. I still will get messages on LinkedIn or if they have my text or Twitter from cast members that worked with me and they say that time was the most magical time in my career. And thank you for making that happen. And that means so much to me because no offense against anybody I've worked with. I don't think it's any secret. It was my favorite job I had in my career. Those four years were an unbelievable, it was an honor and a privilege. It was a lot of work, but I, I was so proud to have that job uh, and so proud of what we did. Um, and I remember taking my mom uh, and dad to, to like 
see the stores, right? And just, we were a Disney family. Like I went to, I went as a child, I went to Orlando in 1971 when it opened with my family. And so Disney was a big part of our lives. And for them to kind of see the full circle again of me being in that kind of position that I was like creating magic for the next generation was wonderful, wonderful. Such an incredible journey. Jim, and what do you think were the biggest lessons looking back? Uh, from Disney Store, I I would say um, uh, I'd, I'd say the biggest lessons were that period of Disney that coincided with me being the president of Disney Store was a lot of change at Disney. We bought Pixar, we bought Marvel, and and it was very challenging. The stores didn't get any bigger. I used to say this all the time. Like you buy all these new incredible character stories that people want, but the stores didn't get any bigger, right? So where, where am I supposed to put it all? And I think that was very challenging. And I learned a lot about planning and allocation and visual merchandising and, and just prioritization and space planning. So I think that that was a really big learning is how, how do you expand a footprint when the store itself doesn't expand, like it doesn't get any bigger. I think the other thing is I probably would have spent more time on e-commerce and the conversion to digital. I was so focused on physical and recreating the physical stores that we probably didn't put enough focus on e-commerce. And as the consumer was really moving digitally and really moving to e-commerce, I think we could have balanced our time a little bit more physical digital i think we were we probably overemphasized physical um i'd say those were the two biggest learnings it's just that allocation and just that physical digital and it's interesting how you can compare what happened with uh having more and more characters to put in the same amount of space you can compare it to what's happening yeah. with us now that we're getting more and more information we have more and more to learn from people, to emulate, books to read, programs to, to follow, and so on. And how do we fit it in the same 24 hours? It's, to your point, information overload. I mean, I it boggles me the amount of content that's being created around the world. Um, you know, this growth of streaming. I, I even look at my own my own viewing habits, right? I'm watching television series in Danish. I'm watching television series in Spanish, right? 10 years ago, I would have never even seen those series unless I happened to travel to that country. Now it's one click on my Netflix and I'm watching, you know, a Spanish drama or a Spanish comedy. Um, and yeah, you need to, it's like that filtering, like there's so much, it's just this constant barrage of information and newness. And I think that's where the the filtering and the relaxation and stuff comes in because sometimes you just have to say, I'm full. I'm full right now. Like I I can't. I'm sure you have the same situation in your readers, I mean your listeners, where somebody will say, have you seen that series? Right. Or have you seen this movie? And I'll be like, no. And then you get almost that FOMO thing of like, wait a minute, was I supposed to see that? Like and then what you realize is you don't have enough time in the, there's not enough time in the week to see everything. Like you can't, it's great to hear your friends' recommendations or people you respect, but that doesn't mean you instantly have to go home 
and start binge watching it and um, try and catch up. Like, um, and I do think it's that it's this cup that keeps filling up and like just the water starts spilling over the cup. Um, there, there is a limit. There is a, there is a capacity. And it actually brings us back to this conversation we had about being productive and being healthy yeah. and physically when you constantly fill up the cup and you don't give it any space to just have silence, go, go for a walk, do meditation. You, you it's not gonna. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the amazing thing is, is that information society and the, the news cycle and the, the media, again, when you get back from your walk, it's still going to be there. If you want to pick it up, it's still going to be there, but you are going to feel different. You are, you are going to have transformed a little bit and maybe you just emptied the cup a little bit to allow some new information in. Um, and, you know, I, you know, one of the other learnings of the book is to stay constantly curious and be a lifelong learner. I think that's the same thing. I I love information. I love new challenges. I love new facts and figures, but you also have to temper how much of it you can take at a time, you know, and, and also acknowledge that you don't have to be the expert at everything. And there's people who are experts out there. Um, and, surround yourself with bright people who maybe are experts in something you're not and just listen to them and learn from them, but you don't have to have all the answers. You know, you don't have to be an expert yourself. Jim, and with the role that you had at Disney, that required you to work with different cultures, different geographies and so on. Very much. What advice would you give to leaders listening to this right now who are also in similar positions? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and again, it's a word, it's not a word we invented at Disney, but it's a word I used a lot, which is the word global, global mixed with local is global. And I think my management style and our culture was global, meaning there were global standards, there were global expectations, there were global goals, there were global guidelines, um, there was a global budgeting process, all of that. But we allowed for local interpretation, local taste, local culture, local events, local holidays. Also, we allowed in a company like Disney, as you can imagine, character preferences and character like likings are very different. Donald Duck is legendary in Italy. Like he's one of the most popular characters in Italy. So in Italy, if you went in the Italy Disney stores, you would find more Donald Duck. You just would. Um, Mickey Mouse in Italy is called Topolino. He's not called Mickey Mouse. So if you went in and bought Mickey Mouse stuff in Italy, it said Topolino. It didn't say Mickey Mouse. And so I think that was the glow. Like you knew you were in a Disney store. You knew you were going to have a fun. You knew you were going to have great customer service. You knew you were going to find your favorite stories, but it was the favorite stories and the favorite characters for that particular market. And we allowed, that was the local part. And so Yes, we set goals and yes, we controlled and yes, we empowered from a central global organization, but we also invested in local resources that allowed people to create um, unique Spanish Disney store experiences, Italian Disney store experiences, Japanese Disney store experiences. Um, so I was always proud because I could go, I was the one who was going around the world visiting all these people. I always knew I was in a Disney store. I always knew 
we even had different uniforms, by the way. We didn't have the same uniform across the, the world because of the different fits and the different sizes and stuff. But I knew I was having a Disney store experience, but I was having a Japanese Disney store experience or a, a, a British Disney store experience. And that to me was global. And that's my advice to, you know, to any leader, to your point, is you cannot standardize everything around the world because then you're not taking into account people's cultural differences, language differences, history differences, and um, you're missing out on opportunities by not allowing some localization and some um, empowering localization. Yes, this is so incredibly important. Another thing I'm thinking about is, so a lot of things I hear from our listeners, clients, members, is yes. that time management is a big issue. Time management, time allocation. Mm. And the more senior you become, the tougher it becomes. And in your role, of course, you had so much demand on your time. <laughs> if you could give advice to our listeners on how they can have better time, yeah. time allocation. Well, I, I have a couple of different answers to that. One, which again, I tell my story. I had amazing executive assistants, like, and never, depending on what level you are, if you're allowed to have an executive assistant, never underestimate the problem of an amazing executive assistant. And I had, I had a, a woman who's in the book, Joanne Martino, for all my time at Disney. And her ability to be a gatekeeper and to help manage my calendar and to really, she became so intuitive. She almost could read my moods and really could see when I was getting overwhelmed or like where, and I would watch her like cancel a meeting to give me a break or, um, or, you know, and we would sit down every Monday morning and review my week and we would identify potential issues where it's like, Ooh, Wednesday afternoon looks really busy. Like, and I don't have at Disney, we worked in multiple offices. And so I always needed travel time because you'd have to drive between buildings. And I'd be like, Ooh, Joanne, I don't think we have enough travel time in there. And so I would like, I would see that and we'd almost anticipate and she would make the adjustments. So one is never underestimate the role of an executive assistant because yes, I managed my own calendar, but, but she was an amazing partner in that. The second one is to set those parameters. We talked about this earlier. What are your work hours? When are you going to start taking meetings? And when are you going to end taking meetings? And be detailed about that, right? Like to me, I, I'm an early bird. So I would get in the office by eight in the morning, but I didn't want to take a meeting until 9.30 because eight to 9.30 was my time to review my numbers, review the emails, review everything. Like I needed time to myself. And so I think it's wrong to like, if your first meeting's at 9.30, don't walk into the office at 9.25 and just go right into a meeting, right? Like you need onboarding time. And then we talked about this earlier in the meditation, put breaks in the day it's okay to put a break and and just put a block from one to two. Now, if an emergency comes up or your boss calls and says, I need to see you from one to two, you of course can override. But put those blocks in. For me, I'm not a, in the middle of the day workouter, but I know people who would go to the gym in the middle of the day. That's when they wanted to work out. So instead of their lunch hour, instead of eating, they would go to the gym. Um, 
I think taking a break, a lunch break, and physically sitting down and eating, not sitting at your desk and doing emails while you're eating a sandwich or a, a cup of soup. I think all of those tools are time management tools, but you, this goes back to the control, the controllable discussion. You, you have the right to say, I'm sorry, I can't take that meeting after 6 p.m. Like if you want to meet, we have to meet before 6 p.m. or we can meet tomorrow morning. Like you have that choice, right? And and we're not going to be rewarded for working the longest hours and being the most tired and being the most burnout. We're not at all. It brings us back to the discussion we had that it's all, it's basically setting certain boundaries for yourself. Boundaries, exactly. You, you, you can maintain good health, good mental clarity, and be productive because there are always going to be people yeah. who will want your time. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think it's an old American adage, but you know, work smarter, not harder, right? Like use, use your brain power, your intellect to work smarter in the time that you're working, work really smart and give your best and then turn it off. And like we said, recharge the batteries. And um, I always used to say, I wasn't a manager. I wasn't a manager that valued FaceTime, we called it, right? So like if I was in the office until 7.30 for whatever reason, if I saw people there at 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, my inclination was, oh my gosh, what are they doing wrong? Like that wasn't like they got credit from me. My inclination was I've got to talk to them or talk to their manager because why are they here until 7.30? Now, if they chose not to come in until noon and that's the way they wanted to work because they had a doctor's appointment or they had to drop their child off school, that could be different. But if I habitually would see somebody there late every night, I would say, we have a problem. Like we as a company have a problem. Either we're not managing that person's workload correctly or they need some help with time management or they need some help with prioritization. And I would talk to their boss or I would talk to HR and say, you know, I was leaving and for four nights in a row, I saw Sally Joe down there and she was working really diligently. And I appreciate that, but it seems wrong that her the rest of her team was gone and she was there until 7.30. Is there something I'm missing? And I think as a manager, you have to look at that stuff and you have to actively listen and you have to walk around and you have to be careful to say, you know, again, an American phrase, oh, burning the midnight oil. That's not a good thing. Like that's, don't, don't reinforce negative behavior. Say, okay, if this is a temporary thing, she has a project that's due, that's fine. But if it's a habitual thing, you need, you need to look at your resource allocation and your time allocation. And she or he may need new skill sets and let's help them. Let's help them. Jim, and this is just actually such a great example and a reason why people still write to you. Because yeah, like I, I, I really hope that. I really hope that they felt empowered and trusted and respected and cared for. I mean, I think my management style is very caring and I genuinely wanted to get to know people. I was excited for them when they were getting married or they were having a baby or their child graduated from high school. Like, and it was, it didn't mean I was intrusive. It didn't mean I was spying on people. I genuinely, my management style is to have a personal connection with my team that goes above and beyond the fact that we work together. And that doesn't mean 
that I wanted to go out after work and have drinks and spend all of our time together. When I went home, I was home. When I went away on the weekend, I was away on the weekend and I was with my friends and family. But it just, it was, one of the things I loved about Disney, I wrote about in the book, we all wore name badges. And on your first day, you got your name badge and you put your favorite character on it. And to me, everybody thought, wow, Jim's really good at remembering names. He's got a really good memory for names. It was, the truth was I had really good eyesight and I could see somebody's name badge and who their favorite character was. And that was like an instant icebreaker to say, oh my gosh, Sally, it's so nice to see you. Tell me why 101 Dalmatians is your favorite character, right? Like, tell me why. And that instantly opened a story and opened a dialogue that had nothing to do with what her job was or my job was. It was like, you know, and my favorite character was Jiminy Cricket. And so then she would say to me, well, why is Jiminy Cricket your favorite character? And I would tell her that story. And I just think that that personal connection, and it's funny, it's been hard during the pandemic because I'm a very much in-person manager. And I've had to learn how to do that through Zoom and how to work in a hybrid environment where you're in a meeting and half the people are in person and half the people are on uh, the computer, like that you still have to make those personal connections even through technology. Really important. It's my management style. It's, it worked for me. And I'm not saying it would work for everybody, but it's, I, I, I really believed it worked for me. Jim, and you know, when I was reading about Jim and I pick it, it reminded me when I was a teenager, I was fortunate enough to be selected to represent Russia as a pianist and get yes. travel in Europe. And when we were in France, we had a chance to go to Disney Park and we were, and uh, there was a Pinocchio ride. And there was a moment there yes. where they showed Jiminy Cricket. And um, it was just uh, this uh, darkness and this window with stars in the background and the cricket was on the window and it was I know exactly what you're talking about yeah I love that I know exactly what you're talking about in that ride um and yeah he's been my favorite since I was a kid since I was a kid it wasn't it was so easy day one for me at Disney like I didn't hesitate who's your favorite character Jiminy Cricket never hesitated and I can say that from all ex from all experiences related to Disney, that moment is the most special for me. So we have that. No, I love that. It's it's a story. I love that. Like I love that story, and um, I think that's that's what really drives my leadership and management style. Is I love knowing people's stories. Like everybody has an interesting your your story fascinates me. The concert pianist and traveling around the world performing, and now you're in management consulting. Like it's 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 a fascinating story, and I think. We all have our own story. We all have our own journey. And can we learn from each other? Of course we can learn from each other. And do I do I share my tips and do I give you ideas and suggestions? Of course I will, because I want to make everybody um, more productive and, and more fulfilled at work. Um, but everybody has their own story. And and I I love getting to hear people's stories. I, I think that's that's the best part. And that's where I think the pandemic for me was hard because it was very isolating to go from being a very physical interactor, like where I loved being in a room with 10 people or five people to having, you know, um, Zoom meetings or Microsoft Teams meetings. Um, 
I had to learn. Like I said, I had to learn new skills. Jim, and the last question from my side for today, and this is my favorite question to ask. Sure. In the last few years, what were few, maybe two, three aha moments, realizations that really changed the way you look at life or the way you look at business? Yeah. Um, I would say the first aha moment was finding out that I could be an entrepreneur and that I didn't have to work in a big corporation because my entire career had really been big corporations. And that was a risk because I had to prove to myself that it wasn't just about being part of a big corporation with a massive team and and HR departments and legal departments and everything that I could manage in that environment, but I also had to show that I could manage in a team of two or three. And so I think that was one big aha moment and a new learning for me. I think another one, it's a little bit sadder, but you know, my mom got diagnosed with dementia and um, you know, she's 82 now and, and we had to put her into a, a facility. It's a very nice facility, but that changes your perspective, right? Because I, I could see that I was starting to lose her and I could see that I was losing her memory. She still recognizes me, thank God today, but she doesn't have short-term memory. So she doesn't remember the last time she saw me or she doesn't remember, you know, what we even had for lunch. Like I, I can spend the day with her and we can go to lunch and an hour later, she won't remember what we had for lunch or where we went. And I think that put a lot of stuff, that was very much an aha moment. That was another life is short moment because it seemed to happen very quickly with my mom, like just almost like a light switch. Um, and I think I think we talked a little bit about it earlier, but I think the other one was um, to just be present and drink in every moment. And I, I really think an aha moment was when we got the vaccines and we were able to start interacting personally again. And like those first meetings with friends and family. I didn't see, I didn't see my sister who I'm extremely close to, you know, from the book for two years. And that first physical hug, like I'm getting emotional thinking about it of just, oh my God, let's hug each other. Right. We'd talked every day. We'd seen each other on FaceTime and stuff, but just those connections again, and to, again, not underestimate what that felt like and friends that, you just hadn't seen at all except digitally. Um, and all the things that happened during the pandemic, people who lost parents and lost, like so much stuff happened during the pandemic and it was like these huge catch-up moments. But just that physicalness of being together and having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee with friends. Like I, I, I would keep saying to myself, be here, be present, just drink it in. This is really special. I'm so sorry to hear about your mom and oh, that's, that's, that's so many people deal with that. Yeah. So many people deal with that. And you, you become the roles reverse. I'm sure you've heard that from clients. You become the caregiver, right? You become almost the parental and she becomes very dependent on you. And um, thank God I have such a strong relationship with my sister and we are in lockstep on how to manage my mother and, Everything that we do now for mom is to make sure she's safe and she's happy. And I think that just distilled down to it's simple. Like, are you happy? Are you safe? Are you eating? Are you getting the medicine you need? And if you're, if that's the case, then we've done our job, you know, but a very different, my mom is a very strong, you know, independent woman, 
and uh, had been a widow uh, for 10 years when this happened. I'd been living on her own 10 years after my father passed away. And we were proud of her, how she was doing. And then just to see that slipping was very hard. But so many people in your listeners and in your clients have gone through this, the aging, the aging parent uh, discussion. That is very true. You become a parent. I, I, you I do. And you, and you make difficult decisions. Yes. Yes. You, you, you become the caretaker. You, you become responsible mm -hmm. to make sure that they're okay, happy. And, for their and, and it's really interesting, Christina, because there's no guidebook for it. Right. I think the type A's that we are now that I've gotten to know you, like I, of course, wanted a website or I wanted like, you know, I wanted like my mom has dementia. Now, what do I do? Right. Like I wanted a, a and there are resources. I'm not saying there's not resources, but again, there's not everybody's formula is different. Everybody's situation is unique. And so I I want to be successful. I'm driven. I'm I wanted to be perfect at it. And I had to let go of that because we weren't going to be perfect. And the disease is unpredictable. And um, you have good days and you have bad days. You have good weeks and you have bad weeks. You have to be willing to go with those ebbs and flows. That is very true. Jim, this is a great place to end this amazing. Oh, I'm so thankful. Before we do that, Jim, do you have anything else you would like to add or share? And also where can listeners learn more about you? Yes, absolutely. Well, um, uh, the book, All Pride, No Ego, comes out August 15th, 2023. It's available for pre-sale now on all the normal outlets, uh, Amazon, Target in particular, Barnes & Noble. Uh, I have a website, www.allpridenoego.com, where you can actually register for newsletters and updates. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on Twitter. They can find me on Instagram. Just look for Jim Fielding or All Pride, No Ego. Um, and I love connecting with people. I love, it is me. When I'm DMing back or you DM me a question, it's me. I don't have, it's not a chat bot. It's not a team. It's me. And I, I love those personal connections. It reminded me of the Twitter story from the book, yeah. When they wanted me to stop tweeting. Yeah. Read the book. When corporate wanted me to stop tweeting because I was telling where I was going, they felt it was a safety issue. You know, like, anyway, it's good. I appreciate this so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Honor. Thank you, Jim. Such a pleasure to have you with us today. I really appreciate the time and all the advice you shared. And for everyone listening in, our guest today again has been Jim Fielding. Last name is spelled F I R. F-I-E-L-D-I-N-G. Check out Jim's book. It's called All Pride, No Ego. And I will see you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.